Welcome to Ready, Leaders to Know. My name is Bill Graves, and for almost 10 years now, I've been building relationships with community leaders who have been tapped as ready to help lead in many different ways. Join me as I continue these conversations with leaders as they reflect back on their journeys. In this episode, I speak with Kirsten Kennedy. Kirsten served two terms as mayor of North Branch, Minnesota, and was a Democratic nominee for Congress in 2018. Kirsten currently leads the Minnesota Center for Employee Ownership as its executive director. During our conversation, Kirsten describes how her father's experiences as a young child in Nazi-occupied Norway, as well as his service in the Norwegian military, prepared her to take risks for things she believes in. A single mother of five, Kirsten discusses balancing the demands of leadership and parenthood. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I was hoping to start with your early years. You uh, were born, I understand, in Athlone, Norway, to uh, a Norwegian military veteran. Can you talk to us about your early days and early life in and around kind of military, military camp, military culture? Absolutely. So my father was Norwegian. He passed away uh, two years ago now. My mom was American and my father came over as part of a NATO squadron, really young. They were 18 year olds from Sweden, Norway, and they came over to train for the around the Nike missile squadron. So they came over and did work. So my dad came to the United States two times, one at 18, the second time at 26. And he met my mom and they got married and moved to Norway. Wow. My mom made it about four years in Norway. Okay. <laughs> wow. Anyhow, uh, so my dad was two when the Nazis invaded Norway and eight when they left. And so he started life, I believe, pretty traumatized. And mm. his, his first love was flying. And all he ever wanted to do was when he, in Norway, they have everyone does two years of military mm. service. Mm-hmm. And uh, he asked his parents to sign off for him to fly and they wouldn't do it. Wow. And so that was his first heartbreak. So he went in and then he got into the nuclear and being dropped into Russia a couple of times. Mm -hmm. There are some stories that he kept for the end of his life. He trained with another, with another officer from another country. I think it was Finland. And uh, when they were getting ready to drop his friend that he had trained with, turned out to be a double agent. You can't shoot, you know, as you're getting ready to dropped in. And so my dad had to take care of him. And, uh, and then of course being dropped into Russia. And then he spent a lot of his time up in the most Northern part of Norway. And that's where they would kind of keep an eye on things across the border, both ways. Right. And so he, he did his service and he left the the Norwegian military to come to the United States. My mom was not, uh, she did not fit in well. Learning the language was hard. I have two older siblings that loved it and didn't want to come back to the United States. Hmm. And, uh, but he did. So he left his country and his family and uh, came to the United States. And they did award him veteran status here from his joint work. But he never 
pursued it at all. When he started to have dementia and get sick, we said, dad, let's, let's just work with veteran services. No. Mm-hmm. And, and in Norwegian, my name is Shishten. Mm-hmm. No, Shishten, I, I couldn't take care of this. Right. He, he, he was a true Norwegian, an mm-hmm. outdoors person. He loved fixing things. He was passionate. He was loud. He was a figure larger than life. Mm. But he always carried with him that trauma that uh, made him a hard, hard man. I always said he had a little troll in him. Mm. So as a kid, of course, it was great because he would wrestle four kids, right? He'd have us all in arms and he'd be playful, but he had some dark sides too. And mm. so there was um, there was some violence and mm. uh, he did his best. I would say that uh, as an adult, I had a much different relationship with him than I did as a as a child, and he was the reason I ran for Congress. Wow! I was not going to file, and he called me at ten o'clock at night, and he said, "Shishton, if good people don't run, then nothing's going to change." Hmm. Wow! And that and that was the the deciding comment. It sounds like. It was. Now, mind you, that there have been points afterwards and along the way where I thought, okay, I could have said no <laughs> to my dad, mm-hmm. but my dad would also campaign with me often, even though he was sort of at the beginning of having Alzheimer's, dementia, he would come with me and he he supported me all the way through, I think, for my dad, it was a highlight of his life to have mm-hmm. uh, a daughter that ran for mayor or or really anything. But he was sort of the old Norwegian that would never say he loved you, right? He would tell mm-hmm. other people how proud he was of us kids, mm-hmm. but not us until probably the end of his life. But I think that running for Congress pushed me because I was still mayor still Mm -hmm. worked a job and was really on the road about 60% of the time driving Mm. all over with my, my campaign lead who was 17 years old at the time (laughs) who would go with me everywhere. Mm -hmm. We went and we had all these adventures. So what I would say about my dad and being in the military, he did some really good things and I'll buy it. He could not fly. When he was in the military, he worked to get his private pilot's license, and he had an old Cessna that he kept at the Rush City Airport. He loved being in the air. I would never go up in it with him, though. (laughs) (laughs) I thought to myself, there is no good small plane accident. So everyone else went Mm. up with him but me. But I would go and help him clean it and take care of it. Mm. But I was too afraid to go in the air with my dad. It's it's fascinating to hear you talk about this, the, like, like what you mentioned, kind of classic Norwegian male identity. Uh, and I'm thinking it as we're here in Minnesota and we, we often think about how Scandinavian, you know, the Scandinavian heritage of of our city. I'm wondering what you have to, to say or think about, you know, having grown up in a Norwegian culture. How does how does that culture compare to the kind of broader Minnesota culture? It often thinks of itself as very Scandinavian. It is. I would say 
uh, first of all, our farm that is still our family farm is in Stanchfield, Minnesota, which is close to Bram and Cambridge, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And we've got about 98 acres. And my dad was a man's man to the core. Mm. He fixed his own cars. He fixed he fixed equipment. He worked in nuclear power plants mm. throughout the world, taking them on and off uh, line and fixing things. And he, his favorite thing though, was to be at the farm anywhere in the world. The farm, Southern California, which we grew up in Southern California too. So we would fly out to my little sisters in Long Beach every year over mm-hmm. spring break. But he loved the farm and and I love it. Every time I go there, I go lay in the grass and just look at the land. It's hilly. And it, I, he bought it because it reminded him of Norway. Mm. And mm. more importantly, he would never pay for <laughs> he would never pay for anything because he he could always do most things himself. So mm. one time at Christmas, we always cut down a Christmas tree. It was the bane of my father's existence because it took, I have five kids. I was a single mom mm. and uh, it would take us a long time <laughs> to choose a tree. Mm-hmm. And he would, he would start being like, we are going to head out if a tree's not picked in five minutes. And then mm-hmm. that five minutes. So one year he came to pick us up in his, his old car that he just kept fixing up because my dad's motto was that cars should go to 300 or 400,000 miles. Okay. All right. You can that, imagine. Is, uh, that is frugality right there. <laughs> so he comes to pick us up uh, in North Branch to go cut down a tree. And he had, he had uh, cut up a box and put it between the engine and the car so the heat would come into the car. And so, and then he had, he had, uh, some kind of wire holding down the front and I just thought we are never going to make it. So we always stopped and got my dad loved beef, loves beef jerky. We all do. Mm -hmm. We Mm -hmm. would always stop at this one butcher shop that had the big beef jerkies, the, the really thick wide ones, each individual piece. And so when we got to the car, I was handing him out. Well, I never got one. I would always just take an adventure bite out of each one of my kids and I took a bite out of my dad's. And the rest of my life, he never let it for, let me forget it. Shishton, remember that time you took my beef jerky? <laughs> I just, just could not let it go. And that was another thing about my dad, good or bad. He had a steel trap of a mind. Mm. And he really, he really was his best when he was on the farm fixing things or taking care of the animals. He loved every moment of it. Mm. I'm I'm curious what you you feel you've taken from sounds like you know your father has a very important person in your formative years and and lots of of memories um what did you take from from him as you kind of headed out into the world and I see you you've got a degree in psychology you obviously got your masters from the masters of advocacy and political leadership program yeah what did you take from him and what do you see uh, of yourself in him now I would say the most important thing I took away is you cannot stay silent Mm -hmm. when human beings are being harmed in any way. Mm -hmm. And you, you have an an innate obligation to act. So for instance, my dad saw a little injustice, exactly the same as a global injustice. Mm -hmm. And that's how we moved through the world. And I feel like I got that too. 
I, mm-hmm. if I see someone in distress, I, I just can't not do something. Mm-hmm. If I see someone getting bullied, mm-hmm. I'll say something or I'll walk and, and, and my kids will tell you, I have three boys and two girls that I would, um, I would just speak up or step in when mm-hmm. no one else would. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my dad was like that too. And so what he instilled in us was an independence, right? We should be able mm-hmm. to change a tire and fix things. Duct tape was my favorite thing in the world when I had my little farm. Mm-hmm. And to not be afraid, even when you have every reason to be terrified. He taught mm-hmm. us to take care of the land and to take care of animals and to care about the people around us whether there are neighbors and to not sit still if there is something that is counterintuitive to those values right so human rights making sure that no one gets left behind in mm-hmm. norway they already have a system set up where no one gets left behind Mm-hmm. They have been inclusive. Now there's some in the younger generation, of course, that is what we would call a little nationalist, right? Mm-hmm. When immigrants come in, but on the whole, Norwegians care about each other and their community. And one example I will give is when COVID started, Sweden chose to do the herd immunity. Mm-hmm. And Norway when it first started said it, it's it's a word in norwegian but it just means for our community for our family and what they were what they were directed to do because most norwegians including my family have cabins you know a few mm-hmm. hours away and they spend a lot of time there out in nature always hiking and they were told to stay in their communities make sure everything one's okay and really just be around your family and so when you look at sweden Mm-hmm. which shows herd immunity, which mm-hmm. America, I, I'm going to give us probably a C, mm-hmm. is that Norwegians are wildly independent, yet they are wildly interdependent. And so it's this very strange independence. We can fix things. We're good on our own. We can chop wood, right? We can make it mm-hmm. to also knowing that some people might not be able to. And so they are committed to taking care of their communities and their families and immigrants that come into the country. Mm. Sounds like very, very clear, you know, moral and civic values that I imagine carried with you as you made the decision to become more politically and civically active in communities. Can you talk to me about how you made that decision to first um, start stepping into kind of political roles in your community? Absolutely. So in 2002, we, my ex-husband was recalled to the military during Noble Eagle, but he was doing uh, warfare cybersecurity. So we spent two years at McDill Air Force Base and then four years in Italy. And when I'd always, I'm an ex-Mormon, I'll just say Mm -hmm. that now. So always in my faith, I had leadership roles and was always coaching my kids' soccer teams or just always being involved, Mm -hmm. an involved parent, I would say. But I also had the luxury for a large part of my life for being a stay-at-home mom. 
So I could do those things. Uh, when I was in Italy, they were having some pretty significant issues with the recruits who had their dorms had males and females in them. And there was a huge problem with, let's say, I'm a, I'm a young, I've been there for two years and I get raped. And oh. then they were being sent right back to those mm. same dorms with the other person. So I became a savvy advocate Mm, for the military that worked with men or women who had been sexually assaulted to advocate for them and to go through the process with them and to try to make some policy changes and environmental changes so that they didn't have to go back and be with their perpetrator and that Mm. they had systems in place where it wasn't just, well, you're a soldier, so suck it up, that there was interventions and therapy and some decisions made, even if they wanted to still stay there, right? Or they wanted to take a break and go home for a while. Before Mm -hmm. you just, it was silence. Don't Mm -hmm. ask, don't tell. And that was sort of my first outside of kind of my faith or community, my small community reach where I just thought this cannot stand. Mm -hmm. We cannot have, we cannot have women in the military and men, but men don't report as much as women Hmm. that are raped or sexually assaulted or whatever it is without Mm -hmm. their consent, whether alcohol was involved or not, that then have to just be put right back into that very unhealthy system. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of pushbacks, pushback Hmm. from the senior officers. And what they would say sometimes is, "I, I lived through it or it's always been this way and and it and it really was just a culture because when we when we got off the plane they brought us into this huge auditorium and we were told uh military members were not issued a family mm-hmm. in that moment i thought okay what am i doing here with five kids and that uh the the military and the mission supersedes anything else wow so i would say that was my first start and then While we were in Italy, my ex-husband said, I don't want to be married anymore. Mm. And that was a hard pill to swallow as someone who had a very uh, short career when I was younger, managing restaurants in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I have no college degree. What am I going to do? So that was one of my, what I would say, a pain point, but also an expansive point. I Mm. think some of my biggest growth has been around sort of those life traumas that happen or failing at something. And so I came back to the United States. We sold our little farm because I thought I'm going to have to go to school. I can't, Mm. I can't support five kids on working at Walmart or working at a fast food place because in America, you can't just work one job for most people and make it or build any wealth. And so I started at Anoka Ramsey community college I became the student Senate president Hmm. and it was an amazing experience. And I've always questioned if I am a leader, I don't know that people are natural leaders. I think you might have some natural affinity, right? Some compassion, understanding, or that drive to do, to make things right that we Hmm. see as wrong. And so I would say when I first started in leadership, I had a little bit of a blind ambition 
which means I was just always fixing, fixing and uh, started the LGBTQ group when I was at Anoka Ramsey and advocated for students and tried to make it a place where everyone could come, which Mm -hmm. there was a problem. We had we had students and I was a student too, mind you, but of course, 30 Mm. years older than everyone else Mm. that uh, would bully other students. And in, in, at a community college, because, right. and, and, and frankly, I'm not even sure how mad we can get, because I think it's just a little bit of a cultural thing, or maybe hate, I believe is learned. So somewhere mm. along the way, they learned it, or maybe their family is anti a different someone who's different than mm-hmm. and, uh, and I took every one of those students or issues personally. Mm. Why do you think that is that you took them personally? I think that everyone, no matter who you are or your life, right? Frankly, middle school is like politics. It Mm -hmm. is a hard few years in middle school, Mm -hmm. right? You're kind of awkward. You don't know where you fit. High school, I kind of found my jam a little bit. I was, I'm a body surfer. So I, I had a natural and I was a swimmer. So once you're on a team, right, you naturally have those friendships, Mm -hmm. but there were a lot of hurt feelings along the way. I remember as a kid, I had a few chunky years, I call them. Now, Mm -hmm. now I love chunky, but back then it was not acceptable. And so I just always felt like perhaps I didn't fit in very well. Mm -hmm. I I was reading books about Gandhi in the third grade. Mm -hmm. And so I was, I say I was an old person in a young person's body. (laughs) And so I would say that Perhaps some of my hurts along the way, or I still remember in the eighth grade, someone called me, I heard someone, and they didn't say it to my face. I heard uh, someone that I had a crush on say, she's fat and she probably smells. Now, mind you, I still remember that clearly, but I I can't remember all the good things, right? So I think that those pain points, that's what we remember rather than all the things we do well, mm-hmm. right? Or all the great parts of it. And and I think I've been that way a little bit in my life, a lot of perfectionism and, and perhaps always feeling like I'm a fraud or someone's going to find out I'm really not smart or good at what I do. And it follows you your whole life. Mm-hmm. And I think that made me want to make sure that no one ever feels that again. Mm. At wherever they are, right? So that I had some rules with my kids and, mm. and they will tell you this. I said, if there is a new kid or a kid that maybe has some neurodiversity or something and they are sitting alone, you are to sit with them. Mm. You are to make sure if you're, if my boys worked at the local skating rink in North Branch. And if, if there's a kid there that's not being is not being asked to participate or play, you make sure you're that person who does that. Mm-hmm. Because I think sometimes we forget that everyone has their stuff and their bends, I call it. Even sometimes the bullies, what we consider bullies or people that might be harsh or mean outwardly, mm-hmm. we don't know why, right? You never know why, but mm-hmm. everyone deserves to be included. Everyone deserves to be seen. And I think when you're going through middle school or high school, it's hard to do that because you're so concerned. Do I look okay? Am I smart enough? I'm like, how am I going to do on this test? How's my swim meet going to go? Whatever it is, 
-hmm. It's always thinking of your deficits instead of your strengths. And I would say that I have carried that eighth grade or middle school, I can't remember if it was seventh or eighth grade. I've carried that with me of just how devastating on the inside that was. I don't even think I ever told anyone because I just felt that embarrassed. And when I look back at pictures, yeah, I was a little chunky. Who cares? Mm -hmm. But then I cared so much. And it was all about not what was on the inside, right? What was on the outside. Mm -hmm. That you feel feel powerless in those situations that someone has that much of an ability to completely, you know, shatter you in some ways. And as, as you grow older, that, that feeling of this should not happen. And now I I'm in a position that I can do something about it. It sounds like it's a huge driver, a huge driver. And so in North branch, even during college, I started to become a community organizer. My first was they wanted to defund our senior center in North Branch that served all of Chisago County. Mm. And, and this is what set me off. But they were going to keep the beer garden at the fair. That's why they had to have the senior <laughs> that's center. That's priorities there. That's priorities. Yeah, that's priorities. Well, I, I always say I got red, which means I, I was just on the inside like a volcano of mm. how, could I, how can I, I'm not a senior at that point, but how can I change this? So I started meeting with, the person who was the director, they were all volunteers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. made very little money. Catholic charities did mm-hmm. congregate dining, right? Mm-hmm. And so there, I just thought we cannot lose this center where people can belong and need to belong as we age out. And so I didn't win that one. They mm-hmm. cut the funding. However, and I was really mad about it, I have to say. Mm-hmm. And, uh, what happened afterwards is in that sort of, I'll say like a bomb went off and then we just organized. So mm-hmm. we uh, got help in making sure the city of North Branch, it was before I was mayor, made sure that they didn't have to, they just said, that building is yours, right? We don't have to do it. We'll help as we can. People who would work there came back as volunteers. Wow. And today it still stands And there were a few years because of them cutting the funding where Catholic charities actually went off site. Then Catholic charities tried to do congregate dining at a restaurant. It was, Mm. it was okay if people could get there. Right. But what about Mm -hmm. all the people living in that building? Mm -hmm. And so after a lot of finagling, we got Catholic charities to commit to coming back and, uh, And we started to uh, have events there to help them, right? So if people Mm. are having fundraisers, the school district or anyone, we would work with them to pay and have it there. Started having some exercise classes and people, seniors in North Branch, they show up there when the doors open and stay there all day. That those Mm. are their people and that's how they stay connected. But most importantly, the congregate dining is all dependent on if you can pay something. And mm. if you cannot, you still get fed. And then our, our Meals on Wheels was housed there too. And so there were a couple years, right, where we didn't get to have that. And so while there was a huge loss, and I've had losses, right, in community organizing mm-hmm. or as a mayor, 
Some, mm -hmm. some, some are deeper than others. And mm -hmm. uh, I would say that that was my first foray into sort of a formal community organizing persona that I didn't mm -hmm. have before, right? I was, I was in Anoka Ramsey doing all of my leadership for the students. It was really mm -hmm. the first time I moved into my community. And then wow. uh, my next community organizing, they wanted to send, uh, it was a crazy amount, a hundred fracking trucks through uh, Taylor's Falls. And if you've ever been to Taylor's Falls, mm -hmm. it's like Laguna Beach in California. Mm -hmm. There's sort of one way through and that's it. Mm -hmm. And so the trucks were going to come through right down Main Street where all the businesses were. And we were successful at that because people that had grown up or had camped or hiked or been on the water in Taylor's Falls, it was a tsunami. It was, it was that perfect organizer's dream where you get that critical mass mm -hmm. and they change things. Mm. The trucks didn't go through there. And so when you get that little taste of, oh my gosh, something changed by regular people getting together and organizing. Mm -hmm. It started mm -hmm. out as four people. And pretty soon we had Rick Nolan coming to wow. talk about it and, and other people starting to notice. And of course, I'm a big, I'm a big petition person. Mm -hmm. I learned and we had thousands of signatures from Minnesota, Taylor's Falls, but all over the United States with people who had either been to Taylor's Falls or had some connection to it. So wow. I got a taste of that and I just thought, hmm, wow, if, if regular people, typically no one was an elected official at that time, the mayor, the mayor in Taylor's Falls was supportive sort of behind the scenes, right? But he has to be cognizant of his of what he looks like for mm -hmm. that want to come in. And so I, I saw the, the delicate line that has to be played. And, and, and that's when I first learned that you have to thread a needle sometimes. Mm. And uh, if you talk to anyone in my family, I'm usually just a bull in a China shop. I'm like, <laughs> we're going to do this. We're just going to mow it over and, and let people fall where they may. And, right. uh, which probably would not have served me well in being mayor. Mm. Well, I was I was going to ask that that you have these again huge growth that sounds like experiences getting into authentic community organizing, and I'm curious how that compared to to being um, mayor. What is that side of the role like? I'm sure that folks were were doing community organizing actions while you were mayor of North Branch as well. Kind of how how is it to see? community work from both sides, the elected and non-elected side? Well, I would say that as a community organizer, my my last big community organizing uh, before I ran for office was they wanted to disband the North Branch Police Department. Mm. And as everyone knows, police departments, once they're gone, they do not come back because mm. it's expensive. Mm -hmm. And that was another, uh, I made some mortal enemies in that organizing of elected officials. And the culmination after months, it, it got to the point where our local, local pizza place was putting our flyers right in the pizza boxes wow. because they wanted okay. it. And the day before the meeting, before the vote, I was up at about 11 o'clock, just heated. Okay, what can I do? What can I do? And I thought, mm -hmm. I can reach out. I know what I can do. I can just pitch this to our local news stations. Mm -hmm. Mind you, you never know if you're going to get it, but 
a new station showed up that night and about a hundred people came and did public comment. It was a little uh-huh. obnoxious, but I think then there was a, a drama moment where the sheriff had said that he wasn't trying to take over. He'd never even thought about it. Well, someone sent me some emails between him and the city council. Mm-hmm. And I read them standing across from the sheriff who later was arrested. Wow. Across from the sheriff who was kind of a scary sheriff and read those emails. And the police department was saved. But the city council was not happy with me. Mm. So when I ran for office, the Friday before the Tuesday vote, someone sent out a flyer to every home in North Branch that said, who or what is Kirsten Kennedy? Mm. They talked about me being from Norway, so I was a communist. They talked about me being a single mom. They got information about my divorce. And um, and then they got something I wrote for the paper. I wrote for the paper when I was at Anoka Ramsey that said that every child my hope was that every child was cared for, housed, fed, and loved so that they could become who they were meant to be. Mm-hmm. And they thought that was, I was an yeah. evil person for doing that. That was a negative framing of you. Wow. Yeah, a negative framing. So I'm driving home. It was, it was Halloween night. And my youngest was probably in the fourth grade. So Halloween's a big deal, right, for kids. And mm-hmm. someone calls me, who I respected, Bob Walls, I still remember. And he said, uh, Kirsten, are these things true about you? And I said, what? Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, I got this flyer. Well, in my heart and in my mind, I was number one, so sad. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do anything before the election. And I was supposed to go and pass out soup at this labor person who lived in North Branch. They had this big spread every year with, and I had to go there. And so I'm in the shower crying, thinking mm. I can't show my face. Who? Everyone's probably read it. Mm. What are they going to think about me? Will they say anything? And my son, my aide, my third grader knocks on the door. He goes, mom, you are a magic mom. You get out of that shower. Mm. We're going to go to Halloween and everything's going to work out. <laughs> wow. So I showed up there. I did. I showed up there and people asked me questions and um, I won the election, Hmm. interestingly. However, I also found out that one of the city council people who owned the gun range paid cash, sent their son-in-law to our local printer and paid cash for that illegal mailer. And so I ended up in court with a three-judge panel over this election mailing that we thought was illegal mm-hmm. and we won. Wow. So now I have the still city council member that owns the gun range. That so Anyhow, when I first became mayor, I had a hostile council for the first two years. All mm-hmm. my Maple people were there. They would come. I spent my entire $3,000 salary on the first time someone took me to court that year. <laughs> and so Here's what I will say. I learned how to run a good meeting. Mm-hmm. I uh, didn't show any emotion. I would drive home afterwards and have a little cry if I needed to. Mm-hmm. I tried just to do the best I could, knowing that there, it was it was a rough couple of years. As a matter of fact, we ended up 
on a website that's about Robert's rules of orders of what okay. not to do. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How would you like that to happen? So I kept being out in the community. I kept showing up and mostly the push really was my kids mm-hmm. and everyone that had sort of been unheard or left behind in North Branch and the staff. The staff had been pretty beaten down. And so I had the staff on my side. I had three city council members that were heatedly against me, Mm -hmm. two of which participated in that illegal mailer. And, Mm. uh, and then I had to make a decision. I thought, okay, I wanted to quit almost once a month. And Mm -hmm. I just thought, well, I'll make it through this term. (laughs) I'll Mm -hmm. make it through this term, right? And then I'll reevaluate if it's not healthy or, but something started to change during that time. I had uh, some owners that had, I believe were not my fans and probably didn't vote for me starting to uh, communicate with me and tell me that they wanted to apologize for how they thought I was before I was mayor. And so I, uh, at the end of that term, I had made some inroads and identified some leaders that I thought could run for city council. I, I worked to uh, turn the council. And so for my last two years mm-hmm. in there, I had not a hostile council. I had three and just one was no to everything we did. I was able to implement uh, doing our roads, finally getting us on a plan to take care of our roads rather than just you know, having to completely replace things, which is expensive. I, I uh, worked hard and we got people raises back on their step raises. And while we were not a large team, it was a magical two years. Still, there's still the issues, right? The, the funniest, the funniest was, mm-hmm. so my kids loved to skate and they worked at the local skating rink there in North Branch. Well, one night, the owner of a home attached that came in with a bag of about 50 pucks in it. And it, during public comment, just put him out. And he's like, those pucks, my basement's flooding, windows get broken. Mm. And I'm sitting up there going, I hope he leaves those pucks. (laughs) You could use them. (laughs) He didn't leave Uh, them. He didn't leave them. But I just thought that. So I tried along the way to have a little humor, right? mm. So for instance, we had to have a training of if, guns came in and someone started shooting council member Bloomquist, who was, uh, became my friend and is still my friend today. She was sitting. So we had a door that you could go out right by our dais, but right next to our dais was just this big window. And all I could think of was she can't hear. I'm going to have to push her out of that window Mm. if something happens, but we're kind of sitting ducks. So I will say there were some really hard times that keep you up at night, but there were also a lot of amazing things that happened. Our community Mm. started coming together. We started doing movie nights in the park and we Mm. started, we had that main skating rink on the, what I call North branch proper where city hall is. And then across the freeway, across 35 W of our new brand new bridge, which was beautiful. Kids didn't have anything over there. So we just decided to do a pop-up. We didn't make a formal house, but we did a shipping container. And then we started doing, we couldn't afford really a um, 
some of the things like a little water park, which I love. And so we got some pop-up things and we would just move them around mm. parks. And I feel that we, there were moments where I just thought, okay, our community's come, our community is together. Because after mm. that first term, I wanted to quit. And then I went to a league of Minnesota cities and someone got up and spoke about, and I can't remember what state, state it is right now, how their big businesses, they were automakers left and their downtown basically went a ghost town. And they talked about how they started this campaign of loving where they lived. And so on the way home from that, I just thought, oh, my gosh, I've been so negative. I made Council Member Bloomquist stop. I went into Target. I bought mm. these. They were kind of thicker. They weren't just paper. These squares. Mm. And I went home and I asked my kids if they would paint for me. They said they will never paint for me again after all the signs they painted for me. <laughs> and so I wrote I and then a heart and then spelled out North Ranch. Mm. The next day, I called some friends whose kids go to the skating rink. And I said, you know, I have this little idea that I've hatched. Would you, would you guys come over and take a picture holding these signs? And of course, I had five kids, so that helped too. And so that was our first I Love North Ranch picture. And I think we ended up having about 600 pictures of I Love wow. North Ranch all over in people's businesses, at the school, early childhood, at the senior center. Hmm. And I think it started making people remember that, yeah, there's a lot of things we disagree on. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of sovereign citizens. We were the largest city in our East Central Minnesota, in our little area. And, and people started to at least not be as combative. Now, don't get me wrong. You, you always have a group of people that don't want anything new or don't want income-based housing, which mm -hmm. we had not had any new in about 20 years. We were able to get 48 units mm -hmm. done uh, with a lot of help and a lot of uh, really creative financing with a little garden. But what I'm most proud of, of the entire time I was mayor is we got a 22 bed single apartments for people with long-term mental health issues, chronic mm. homelessness, and then vets. And it was managed by Canvas Health. And while it was not completed before I ended being mayor, it was completed shortly afterwards. And I would say mm. that that was the best thing that I think I've done in my life was getting wow. that through. And it and we should have one in every community in East Central Minnesota. And this is the only one that has mm. been built. Wow. And so it just, it made me start looking at, at, at schools, how we do schools. I, uh, I, by senior year of college, I started working for the Statewide Health Improvement Partnership for East Central Minnesota, doing population health and really reimagining systems and how we do things. For instance, with schools, we changed to have some more wraparound services to make sure that we had emergency food on all of our school sites. When kids get to high school, they don't really take it, but other others do. And making sure that kids that are have behavior issues don't get put in a room that looks like a prison. Mm -hmm. And then working with our 18 to 20 year, 21 year olds, they have a work life center, people with disabilities, working with them to do some growing and, and to, uh, right? Being able to cook or do other things that we take for granted. And so I would say that even with all the hard things, the good outweighed it. And it mm. just made that kind of fall away. Hmm. Well, it sounds like so many things happened and it's, it's fascinating to hear how invested you were in seeing the North Branch community 
really kind of come together even when it was difficult to do important things for community. I'm curious as we're wrapping up, you're now the executive director for the Minnesota Center for Employee Ownership. Yes. So you've gone from kind of community organizer moving into into elected leadership and now in the in a nonprofit leadership role. How how has that leadership experience changed how you think about leadership and community now that you're you're leading this group? I started to look for a job after my Bush fellowship, which ended in 2022. And I had done a year doing project management out at Intermountain Healthcare. Mm -hmm. And it made me want to never work for corporate America ever Mm -hmm. in my life. So I started looking for nonprofit jobs. When I first saw this job, I thought, I have been fighting unfettered capitalism since I took my first breath and Mm -hmm. not going to be around economic development people all my life. But Mm -hmm. then... I recognized that I believe employee ownership in any form, whether it's an an ESOP, which is good for big businesses and you don't have to pay federal or state taxes, an employee stock ownership plan. We got our first employee ownership trust in Minnesota, which is another model. And what I am enamored with now, as I think of making our communities whole and equitable and wealth building for single moms like me who could never make it happen to get their family out of poverty is mm. employee ownership is transformative and cooperatives, which can fit a lot of businesses, including startups. I believe that employee ownership can transform our community. So one of the projects I'm working on right now is figuring out how to do more worker ownership Mm-hmm. especially in communities that are underserved with some cooperative housing and creating a space so that workers can live by where they work. They're now employee owners. So when they retire, they're going to have something more than just their 401k that they don't have to put into. When I was a single mm-hmm. mom, I could have put into a 401k, but something always needed the, that money always needed to go to something else mm-hmm. with employee ownership worker-owned cooperative and the Employee Ownership Trust, you get those benefits while you're working there, right? You're building it every year. You're going to get some shares or bonuses when the, when the places are doing well. And I think that that starts a fire in me to, th- to really think that in all the years we've been dreaming of an America where you can work one job and have enough to build wealth and have a home and have a car and have enough food that you want and maybe have some vacations. You can have some time to build up you or what you mm-hmm. want to do when you are not afraid every day that if you can't pay your house payment the next month or the month after that, right? Because someone got sick or you have a huge bill or a hospital bill or any other kind that you're going to be okay. You're going to be better than okay. You, when you retire or along the way, you're going to get paid better wages and you're going to you're going to become the leader as much as you want to be and i think leadership is something that everyone should be able to do that wants to well kirsten kennedy thank you so much for joining us today thanks for having me ready leaders to know with bill graves is produced by carla godwin and matt Mussel, with support from abdullahi mohammed and abshir fatule audio editing is provided by beth k gibbs of lift podcasting thanks for listening 